Yes, I'm delighted to be joining you from Aotearoa, New Zealand, in the city of Tamaki Makauro, Auckland. And that's the biggest city in Aotearoa, which is the Maori name for New Zealand. Maori being the indigenous people who were here before colonization by the British. So I just want to acknowledge that I'm here on land that is cared for by the Ngāti Whātua or Ōrake people. And just to acknowledge their ongoing connection with this land, their connection, their stewardship of the land and the sea in this area. So even though I'm currently on the other side of the world, as you heard, I used to be on staff at IMS. And so I got to know a few CIMC teachers, Sangha members, and I got to visit your center too. So I'm really happy to be here with you tonight to reconnect with your community and to see a few familiar faces and names. So again, as you heard, uh, I was at IMS for a while and after leaving there in 2012, I was technically homeless for eight years. And during that time, I just went wherever I was invited to teach, mostly the US, Australia, New Zealand, sometimes UK and Europe. And even though I was spending time with meditators in quite a wide range of different communities, at first I was surprised at how much similarity there was in the issues and the challenges that so many of us are dealing with, regardless of what city or country or culture we happen to be living in. So in terms of meditation, and actually daily life too, one very common theme that showed up was this sense for many people of almost being at war with their own minds, battling with an incessant stream of overactive thinking that at best, as I'm sure you know, is tiring and at worst, actually toxic, harmful to ourselves, potentially harmful to others if we act out on those afflictive thoughts. So for many people, it's that first recognition that, wow, my mind is out of control, that motivates them to try meditation. And perhaps this was true for some of you. So we download an app or we come to a meditation class with some vague hope that we're going to somehow be able to get rid of that relentless stream of thinking, that torrent of mostly unpleasant mental activity that can feel to torment us from the minute we wake up and sometimes through the night as well. Unfortunately though, again, as you might know from your own experience, what usually happens when we first sit in silence and try desperately to make the mind shut up is that not only does that thinking not go away, it can seem to get even louder, more insistent. And at this point, many beginner meditators will tell themselves either, well, pff, meditation just doesn't work, or that they themselves can't do it. And to me, it's tragic how often I, people, I hear people say something like, well, I can't meditate because my mind just won't stop thinking. Now, this is a hugely common misperception of what meditation is about. Even very experienced meditators can have an underlying belief that so-called good meditation 
involves the mind being completely free of any mental activity whatsoever. And while it's true that this can happen in some forms of concentration, absorption meditation, in terms of insight or vipassana meditation, the practice is not about trying to get rid of thinking. It's about developing a wiser relationship to it so that we can recognize which types of mental activity are unhelpful, maybe even harmful, and which types of men mental activity are beneficial so that ultimately we can free ourselves from all afflictive states of heart and mind. Now, if perhaps for some of you that sounds like a distant, far off goal, I also want to touch in on this talk into the understanding that probably all of us are already experiencing more moments of ease and freedom than we might consciously recognize. And so part of working skillfully with the mind is learning to recognize those moments of relative ease and freedom more clearly. I'll come back to that point later on. For now, just to say that I chose the title of this talk, Befriending the Mind, to normalize the fact that working with difficult thoughts and emotions is not only to be expected, it's actually the path to freedom. And I like to emphasize this because unfortunately, in the way that we, including me, tend to give beginning instructions and in insight meditation, we usually hear a lot of emphasis on paying attention to the breath and just the breath. So the basic instructions are usually bring awareness to the breathing, notice when the attention has wandered, gently bring it back to the breath. Just keep coming back to the breath and don't get involved in thinking of any kind. Does that sound familiar? Have you had those basic instructions? So yeah, they're the standard instructions. And again, I might give them at the start of a retreat. The problem is if we just hear those beginning instructions over and over and over, and if we aren't told what the purpose of doing that is, then we can develop the misunderstanding that mindfulness is just about breathing. And any other experience, particularly thinking, is a problem to be got rid of as soon as possible. Now, again, it's true that if we're practicing mindfulness of breathing as a samadhi practice to attain those deep states of absorption known as jhana, then we do want to keep inviting the attention to absorb into the breath. If we're practicing mindfulness of breathing as an insight practice, though, we're using the breath as a tool to strengthen and stabilize our mindfulness. And then once the mindfulness has become more steady and stable, we can open up the field of our awareness to include more and more aspects of our experience, including all kinds of our mental activity, thoughts, emotions, moods, mind states, to name just a few. So for those of you who are familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the key discourse for insight or Vipassana practice, you know that there are four domains of mindfulness there, not just breathing in the section on mindfulness of the body, but also mindfulness of feeling tones, mindfulness of the mind itself, 
and then mindfulness of dhammas, sometimes translated as categories of experience. And that last foundation or establishment includes bringing awareness to qualities of mind that are harmful so that we can let go of them and recognizing qualities of the mind that are skillful and beneficial so that we can strengthen and develop them as a support for freedom. So you can hear from that summary that paying attention to the mind is actually a crucially important part of this practice. We want to recognize some of those more ingrained habit patterns so that having recognized them clearly, we can learn how to help them release. And when we can do that, there's almost literally more room in the heart and the mind for skillful, beautiful qualities to develop and grow. For example, the four Brahmavihara of kindness and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity, alongside ever-deepening wisdom. So the first stage in this process of befriending the mind is simply to be aware of what is happening there. And then to recognize whether those thoughts and emotions are harmful or helpful. Now, to an ordinary person with no meditation training, even that much is quite radical. Just being able to disengage from our mental activity enough to be able to recognize, is this skillful, useful or not? And I'm guessing quite a few of you here are experienced meditators. But even experienced meditators were still training in recognizing perhaps those more subtle afflictive thought patterns or emotional states. So just to make this more practical, I'd like to take a little bit of time now to check in with you, just to get a sense of what kinds of, firstly, afflictive thought patterns commonly come up for you. Now, instead of having to mute and unmute, I thought we could just do this by typing in the chat box. So I'll get a stream of responses and then I can read some of them out. And it's uh, perhaps not so personal. So you don't have to name your deepest, darkest, afflictive thought patterns if you don't want to. Keep it on any level that you like. You might name that you're calling this in for a friend. So you have a friend who commonly experiences jealousy, for example. So let's just take a moment now just to see in the chat box, if we can get Nico to set that up, what kind of afflictive thought patterns commonly come up for you? The inner critic. Yes, I'm guessing most of us can recognize that. Judging, thank you. Similar. Planning, yep. More self-judgment. Daydreaming, randomly spinning off. Work issues, more daydreaming, planning, imagining, problem solving, rehearsing, fear. Critical of myself and my friends self-judgment, regret. Yep, that's a perfect random sample. Thank you. So I'm guessing, I don't like to make assumptions, but I will just for the purpose of this talk. I'm guessing that every one of you would have experienced some of those things at some time in your practice. Does that sound fair? 
So just to acknowledge the universal nature of them. And now, as many of you know, in the Buddha's teachings, he famously taught what he called the middle way. And this middle way is the balance between extremes of any kind. So in the service of that balance, I'd also like to invite you now to look at the other side, to see if you can name some beneficial qualities of heart and mind, any thoughts and mind states that are positive, supportive of freedom. So let's do that again, just to post in the chat. And again, it could be a friend who experiences deep calm, any qualities that are skillful and freedom. So sympathetic joy, thank you. Faith, lovely. Compassion, gratitude, persistence, creative problem solving, gratitude, peace, determination, love, empathy, imagination, quickly letting go, daydreaming, release. Oh, beautiful. Just reading them, I feel like there's a subtle shift in my own mind state. Maybe that's true for you too. So really happy to see that. They were coming thick and fast. I couldn't read all of them, so apologies if I missed yours. Now, maybe because you're more experienced meditators, it seemed like there was an even spread between the afflictive and the beneficial. But often when I do this, people find it much easier to name the unpleasant and painful states than perhaps to find the positive ones. And that's partly because of our mind's inherent negativity bias. As neuroscientists have discovered, to some extent, we are hardwired to pay more attention to what's painful, challenging, potentially threatening, than to what's pleasant and easeful and nourishing. And as a result, we can often overlook those small moments of ease and freedom that are available to us as a result of our practice. And that's because we're so busy focusing on the potential next problem or the next challenge that might be just around the corner. So Rick Hansen's very well-known aphorism that our minds are like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant. So I think we can recognize the truths of that. And that's one why at the end of the meditation, I invited you just to pause before the end of the sitting and to see if you could touch into some of those skillful states that have got strengthened, even if it was just a tiny bit. So one of the challenges of having this inherent negativity bias is that not only do we tend to notice the unpleasant thoughts and emotions more clearly, we also tend to take them more personally. Sometimes we even collapse our whole identity into our negative mind states. So in English, it's common to hear statements like, I am so angry. I'm so greedy. I'm so ashamed and so on. We tend not to identify so strongly with the pleasant thoughts and the beneficial emotions. And as I'm sure you know from your own experience, the problem with getting caught in identification with those afflictive states is that it makes them last longer. It makes them feel more intense. And at the same time, it strengthens those neuronal pathways 
so that those afflictive states are easier to come up again in the future. So the first stage in deconstructing all of this is to know thoughts as just thoughts. And you all are meditators, so to you it might sound obvious, normal, ordinary. Even so, even experienced meditators at times, we can get caught in taking our thoughts far too seriously to believe what we're thinking, to believe that we are our thoughts. So it's very common. Some of you may have had this experience even today, perhaps, of being relatively relaxed, at ease, maybe even happy. And then suddenly, seeming out of nowhere, a random negative thought comes in and it feels like our whole world shifts. And we take the bait, we clamp down on that thought and we get caught in all kinds of unpleasant, unskillful emotions sometimes for hours, maybe even days, because of one firing of neurons in the brain. So I think we all know for ourselves what happens, what can happen when we don't pay attention to the mind and just let it run with whatever happens to flit through it. As our mindfulness gets stronger, though, we get more ability to recognize that thoughts are just thoughts in and of themselves, they don't actually have that much power. They're just made up of tiny pulses of electrical activity in the brain. And they only have as much power as we give them. The more solid we make them, the more weight we give them, the more personally we take them, to that extent, they cause us stress and distress. The opposite is also true. The more we can know our thoughts as just thoughts, then the more freedom we have to choose which ones we respond to and which ones we simply let go of. So perhaps some of you are thinking, well, that sounds good, but how do we actually do that? So in working with thoughts in this process of befriending the mind, I like to bring in what are known as the two wings to awakening. The two wings being wisdom and compassion. And I like that metaphor of wings because you get a sense that both wings need to be equally well developed if we're going to metaphorically fly. And so just to bring in the first wing now, the wisdom wing, one way we can use wisdom in how we relate to our thoughts is to bring in the understanding of what are known as the three universal characteristics. So these three universal characteristics are the insight or understanding that everything is constantly changing, is impermanent, or anicca, to use the Pali word. And because of that impermanence and instability, nothing is capable of giving us lasting satisfaction. So it's unreliable, imperfect, or dukkha, to use the Pali word. And again, because of that same instability, there's no fixed identity at the center in here, no solid, permanent me to whom it's all happening. So it's not self, impersonal, anatta. Now, just to acknowledge if these teachings are new to you, they might sound a bit strange and abstract. 
So just keep in mind for now, impermanent, imperfect, impersonal. And I'll try to give some practical examples of how we can use these three lenses to look at our afflictive thoughts with more wisdom. Because the more deeply we see into these three characteristics, the more powerfully they support ease, happiness, peace, and freedom. And again, the opposite, the more we resist the truth of these understandings, the more we suffer. So I'd like to look at them a bit more closely now to see how they might apply to our painful mind states to help reduce suffering. Okay, so the first one, impermanence, can be a powerful ally to reduce the intensity of our afflictive mind states. So if we consciously remind ourselves of the truth of change, so for example, if something like anger or fear or grief comes up, the unconscious tendency is often to struggle with it, to try to avoid it, to get rid of it, and often that struggle makes it stick around longer. But if we remember the truth of impermanence and we allow it just to have to make space for it, we allow it to move through. We can understand that because of the truth of change, at some point it will go away. And we can just remind ourselves this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Because of anicca, impermanence, that painful state will eventually disappear of its own accord. Maybe not as quickly as we would like, but it will definitely eventually pass away. And understanding this can help us release the grip of trying to control that state, which usually only intensifies the suffering of it. It's not so easy to do this though, because again, of the mind's negativity bias. And often what we see is that tendency to collapse into the afflictive state and actually to assume that it is permanent, to believe that this is how it is and how it always will be forever and ever. And we can find ourselves unconsciously making this state more solid and permanent by how we talk about it to ourselves in our inner dialogue. So this is a key skill in befriending the mind is to begin to notice how are we talking about our experience to ourselves. And as we listen carefully to what we're telling ourselves, sometimes we hear statements like, I'm always anxious, or I never experience any relief, or it's just constant misery. Any of that sound familiar? Is it one of the challenges with words such as always and never and constant are that these are symptoms of what psychologists call absolutist thinking. And absolutist thinking is an unhealthy thinking style that's been linked to anxiety and depression. And in Buddhist terms, this thinking style is unhealthy because it's reinforcing the delusion of permanence. So these can be key words to look out for, always, never, that sort of eternalizing statements. And if you do happen to notice them coming up in your mind, you might just play with the language and see if you can change it to something more accurate, more factually true. 
So instead of telling ourselves, I'm always anxious, you might say, I do have a tendency to feel anxious in certain circumstances. Do you hear the difference? I'm always anxious, as opposed to, yes, there is a tendency to feel anxious in certain circumstances. There's just a little bit more space in there. And even just that small acknowledgement that the anxiety is not as continuous as we usually believe, that can help release the grip of it slightly. So sometimes, though, when I suggest to people to try this, they try to convince me that actually I'm wrong and that their anxiety is always there, always has been, constantly present and will be forever and ever. And so sometimes one tool that I use to challenge this misperception is just to invite people to notice the fluctuating intensity of whatever the afflictive state is. Again, I'll use anxiety just because it's a common uh, afflictive state. So if we think of a scale of zero to 10, where 10 might be a full-blown panic attack, or if it was anger, or most intense rage imaginable, and zero is completely calm at ease. So checking throughout the day at any point in time to see how intense is the anxiety now. And although we might think or assume it's always around an eight or a nine, usually when people pay more refined attention, they see it sometimes spikes and then it settles down. And then it might spike a little and it'll settle down. And one of the benefits of doing this is it also gets us used to noticing those times when the anxiety or the anger or the despair is reduced. Again, because of the negativity bias, we tend to not notice those times. But at every time we can let the reduced afflictive states really register, again, we're changing the patterns with denourishing the neuronal pathways of anger and anxiety, and we're strengthening the pathways of calm and ease and well-being. So that's just one way we can work with impermanence to challenge the seeming solidity of the state. The second of the three characteristics, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, or imperfection, as it's sometimes called, also can help to reduce painful mind states, even though at first this might be a hard one to accept. This is partly because I think most of us have such a drive to try to make everything okay, all right, even perfect. It just seems to be a fundamental part of being a human being that we put so much energy out there trying to control our external circumstances, trying to make all the conditions around us, even the people around us, be exactly the way we want them to be. And there can be a deep unconscious assumption that if I can just do X or Y or Z, then everything will be okay. Then I'll be happy. But in spite of all that effort, not many of us can say that we have experienced that mythical, elusive, lasting happiness that we long for. Now, that's not to deny, of course, that there are moments of happiness, sometimes many moments of intense happiness. But overall, again, because of the truth of impermanence, instability, 
we rarely experience that lasting satisfaction that we long for. So there's something for many people profoundly, even primally challenging about accepting imperfection, understanding that we're not in nearly as much control as we'd like to believe we are. And that actually we can't make the world perfect. And we are all vulnerable at times to life not going our way. So opening to the truth of dukkha, imperfection, it deeply challenges that need to be in control. And it can reveal our perfectionism, our idealism, our striving, which often we bring to our Dharma practice too. And sometimes we start to recognize that all of our practice is, has become a giant self-improvement project, one that's actually rooted in self-aversion and resistance to this truth of imperfection. Now, to be clear, by acknowledging the truth of unsatisfactoriness, that doesn't mean we just give up completely. Well, it's all dukkha, so why bother? That would be apathy rather than the wisdom of true acceptance. What we're aiming for is a wiser and more balanced relationship to those afflictive mind states when they do come up so that we can look at them non-judgmentally to discern what we might be able to change and to accept what we can't, as the famous serenity prayer says. So when it comes to afflictive states, we want to pay attention to any resistance to them and the assumption that they're wrong and bad and shouldn't be happening. So we can ask ourselves, what's the attitude in the mind to what's happening? How am I relating to this experience, as Sero Utejaniya often asks. And when we do this, we might recognize the resistance and instead, orient to the wisdom, the understanding that we are human beings with vulnerable human bodies, vulnerable human hearts, vulnerable human minds. And so all of us are susceptible to painful states at times. As far as I know, there isn't a human being who doesn't at times experience them, who isn't completely and utterly immune. Now, even though we might understand this in theory, most of us have a tendency to take our afflictive mind states pretty personally, to see them as our own unique shortcomings, our own individual weakness or neurosis. And again, in terms of insight practice, this is a pretty serious distortion of the truth. So now we come to the third of these three characteristics, which is anatta, usually translated as not-self that understanding that everything we experience is an impersonal process. It's not happening to a fixed, solid, permanent self who dwells at the center of the universe, even though a lot of the time it does feel that way. So just to acknowledge this truth of anatta can be understood on deeper and deeper levels. And usually the deepest insights come from uh, the stillness and balance that can happen in longer retreats. But it's still possible to develop some sense of anatta on a conceptual level and get practical benefits from it. So, for example, when we clearly see how much extra pain we add 
by taking our afflictive states personally, then it becomes easier to let that reactivity fall away. Now, again, this might sound simple in theory, but in practice can be very challenging, especially when we're working with those more intense emotions, such as anger and fear. Because as a general rule, the more intense the emotion, the more likely we are to take it personally. But coming back to the core text, the Satipatthana Sutta, in the section on mindfulness of mind, the Buddha asks us to just notice whether there are afflictive states present in the mind or not. And I find the language that he uses here very interesting because it's completely impersonal. He doesn't say, notice when you are lustful or angry or deluded. He doesn't even say, notice when your mind is lustful or angry or deluded, concentrated or unconcentrated and so on. He simply says to notice whether these mind states are present or absent. That's all. So right there is the invitation to understand that these mind states are impersonal. They arise due to causes and conditions. And we don't need to take them personally. We don't need to identify with them. We don't need to hold on to them. We don't need to get rid of them. We simply know, are they present? Are they absent? Again, not the way most of us relate to them. It's very common to feel frustrated when these afflictive states do come up, even though most of the time we haven't chosen for them to happen. So we can just gently tell ourselves, this is not me. This is not mine. This is not who I am. And it's not my fault. It's arising due to causes and conditions. And it will disappear due to causes and conditions. So the language in the sutta is completely impersonal. It's also completely impartial and balanced. There's an attitude of equanimity built into it. As an investigation from both sides, is a mind state present? Is it absent? This is very different from our usual way of relating to mind states. So mostly we only tend to see when things are present. We don't recognize. For example, right now, I'm guessing, I am hoping, none of you are seething with anger and rage right now. Right? And what might be present instead is maybe some degree of calm or steadiness, openness, maybe interest. So we tend to notice only what's present. And we tend to only notice what's afflictive. Again, the mind's negativity bias at work. So for many of us, consciously training in seeing pleasant states, opening to pleasant experience, can be a powerful way of enabling us to recognize the full spectrum of our experience rather than collapsing into just one narrow bandwidth of what's painful. And again, our inner language can offer us some clues to show how we're relating to our experience. And early on in my own practice, I started paying attention to what I called I am thoughts or I am statements. 
I started to notice how often I would tell myself something like I am X or Y or Z and how often there was a kind of tightness to that statement. And as I learned to recognize it, I saw how I was identifying with whatever that statement was. And so I started to do a practice of whenever I heard some kind of I am this or I am that, to really stop and ask, is that true? And to my surprise, actually shock, most of the time it wasn't. At best, that I am statement was partially true or temporarily true, but it was never as solid and permanent as I was trying to tell myself. So again, if you aren't already, you might just have your sort of inner radar tuned in to recognize those I am statements and just see if you can gently question the truth of them. Because if we just keep telling ourselves, I'm a procrastinator, or I'm a highly anxious person, or I'm a failure, or whatever, they be, those statements become prisons, and they keep us stuck in relating to ourselves and the world in just one way. So again, we can play with the language. Rather than, I'm a procrastinator, you might say, well, when I'm under pressure, I do have a tendency to put things off. And again, hopefully you can hear the difference. That in the second statement, there's more nuance, there's more lightness, there's more possibility. So these are some ways of using the wisdom wing, bringing in mindfulness, bringing in the understanding of anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self or impersonal. For all of us though, at times, Mindfulness alone is not enough. And the afflictive mental states can get such a grip on us that we no longer have the power to simply be present with them. So we're fortunate that the Buddha offered us a whole range of tools for working with the mind. So now I'd like to just touch into the second wing, the compassion wing of the practice. And this includes all of the Brahma Viharas, so not just compassion itself, but metta or kindness, mudita or appreciative joy, and upeka or equanimity. So each of these beautiful qualities of the heart, they can be brought in as very powerful antidotes to any afflictive states that have come up. So for example, before many of you acknowledge self-criticism or self-judgment. So in that case, the Brahma-Vihara of self-compassion can be a very powerful antidote to soften, maybe even release the pain of that state. Perhaps for some others, we might at times feel resentful of someone's good fortune or get caught in a sense of lack or inadequacy. And then the practice of appreciative joy or mudita can help orient us towards gratitude and contentment instead of jealousy and insufficiency. If we're feeling overwhelmed by all the negative news from all around the world, then consciously orienting to equanimity, steadiness can help us come back into balance. So each of these four Brahma-Vihara can act to relieve specific afflictive states. 
They act as antidotes to release those mental toxins and bring us back to health. Still using this health analogy, they also act as preventatives that can help to stop those afflictive states coming up in the first place. So I think of them as like a daily boost of vitamin C for our emotional immune systems. Because when we keep inclining the heart and the mind towards kindness and compassion, joy and equanimity, it powerfully protects against the afflictive state. It's a bit like hair conditioner, conditioning the hair, softening it, making it easier to comb or brush, it's less entangled. So the Brahma Vihara soften the heart and the mind. And then those afflictive mental states, it's harder for them to get their hooks into us. So with practice, these Brahma Vihara states can help to release all afflictive states of any kind. And we can dwell in them more and more fully. And over time with practice, they become more and more the default setting. So this process of befriending the mind is not just a psychological process of understanding our emotional and uh, mental habits. It leads all the way to the highest happiness, to the peace of Nibbana. And that's the awakened heart and mind that the Buddha discovered in his awakening. And that each of us here are training in too. Just to notice those moments when there is more openness, ease, kindness, compassion. So that as we befriend our minds more and more fully, we're all able to offer those same qualities to others. Okay, so I think that's probably plenty to be going on with. I'd like to leave time for any questions or comments. So just to close by, thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.